Poem of the Man God, Book 1, Number 131. Jesus at the Clearwater. You shall not covet what belongs to your neighbor. God gives everybody what is necessary. That is the truth. What is necessary to man? Pomp? A large number of servants? Countless fields? Banquets lasting from sunset to dawn? No. All that is necessary to man is a roof, a loaf, a garment, the indispensable to live. Look around yourselves. Who are the happiest and the healthiest? Who enjoys a healthy, tranquil old age? Fast-living people? No. Those who live and work honestly and wish honest things. They are not poisoned by lust and they are strong. They are not intoxicated by orgies and are thus agile. They are not consumed by the poison of jealousy and are thus cheerful. Who instead craves to possess more and more, kills his own peace and has no joy. Grows old precociously, consumed by envy and abuses. I could link the commandment, you shall not steal, to the other one, you shall not covet what belongs to your neighbor. In fact, an immoderate longing urges one to steal. The step between the two is a very short one. Is every desire an unlawful one? I do not mean that. The father of a family who works in the fields or in a workshop and wishes to gain what is necessary to secure food for his family most certainly does not commit a sin. On the contrary, he fulfills his duty of a father, who instead craves only to enjoy more and takes possession of what belongs to other people to have a better time, commits a sin. Envy. What is to covet other people's property but avarice and envy? My dear children, envy separates man from God and unites him to Satan. Do you not remember that Lucifer was the first one to covet what did not belong to him? He was the most beautiful of the archangels and enjoyed the vision of God. He should have been happy with that. He envied God, wanted to be God, and became a demon, the first demon. Another instance, Adam and Eve had been given everything. They enjoyed the earthly paradise in God's friendship, blessed with the gifts of grace which God had granted them. They should have been satisfied with that. They envied God's knowledge of good and evil and were driven out of Eden and became disliked by God, the first sinners. A third instance, Cain envied Abel's friendship with the Lord, and he became the first killer. Mary, the sister of Aaron and Moses, envied her brother and became the first leper in the history of Israel. I could lead you step by step through the whole history of the people of God, and you would see that immoderate longing made men sinners and brought the country calamity because the sins of the individuals accumulate and bring disaster to the country, exactly as grains of sand piling up throughout centuries cause landslides which overwhelm villages and their inhabitants. I have often cited little children as an instance, because they are simple and trustful. Today I say to you, imitate birds in their freedom from desires. Look, it is now winter. There is little food in the orchards. Do they worry about hoarding it in summer? No, they do not. They trust in the Lord. They know that they will always be able to catch for their little crops a small worm, a little grain, a crumb, a small spider, a little fly floating on water. They know that there will always be a warm chimney top or a flock of wool to shelter them in winter. 
and they know as well that when the time comes when they will need hay for their nests and more food for their little ones, there will be sweet-smelling hay in the fields and juicy food in the orchards and in the furrows, and the air and the soil will be rich in insects. And they slowly sing, Thank you, Creator, for what you give us and will give us. And they are ready to sing hosannas at the top of their voices when they will enjoy the company of their mates during the mating season, and they see their offspring multiply. Is there a happier creature than a bird? And what is its intelligence as compared to the intelligence of man, a chip of silica compared with a mountain? But it teaches you a lesson. I solemnly tell you that who lives without any impure desires possesses the joy of a bird. He trusts in God, feels that God is the Father. He smiles at the rising day and at the falling night because he knows that the sun is his friend and night his nourishment. He looks at men without malice and is not afraid of their vengeance because he does not harm them in any way. He is not afraid for his health or his sleep because he knows that an honest life prevents diseases and grants a peaceful rest. And finally, he is not afraid of death because he knows that since he always acted well, God can but smile at him. Also a king dies and a rich man dies. A scepter will not avert death. Neither can money buy immortality. As before, the king of kings and the lord of lords, crowns and money are ridiculous things. A life lived according to the law is the only thing of value. What are those men at the end of the room saying? Do not be afraid of speaking. We were saying, of what sin is Antipas guilty? Of theft or adultery? I would like you to look at your own hearts and not at other people. But I will reply to you that he is guilty of idolatry because he worships the flesh more than God, and he is guilty of adultery, theft, unlawful desires, and he will soon be guilty of homicide. Will he be saved by you, the Savior? I will save those who are repentant and return to God. The unrepentant shall have no redemption. You said that he is a thief. What did he steal? His brother's wife. A theft is not only of money. It is also theft to take a man's reputation, to seduce a virgin, to take a wife away from her husband, as it is theft to steal a neighbor's ox or his plants. A theft, aggravated by lust or false witness, is aggravated by adultery, fornication, or falsehood. And what sin does a woman who prostitutes herself commit? If she is married, a sin of adultery and theft with regard to her husband— if she is not married, a sin of impurity and of theft with regard to herself. To herself? But she gives what belongs to her. No. Our body was created by God to be the temple of the soul, which is the temple of God. It must, therefore, be kept honest. Otherwise the soul will be robbed of God's friendship and of eternal life. A prostitute, then, can only be of Satan? Every sin is prostitution with Satan. A sinner, like a hired woman, gives herself to Satan for unlawful love, hoping to make a foul profit. Prostitution is a grave, a very grave sin, which makes man like unclean animals. But do you think that any other capital sin is not so grave? What shall I say of adultery, of homicide? And yet God forgave the Israelites after the golden calf. He forgave David after his sin, which was a twofold one, 
God forgives who is repentant. Let repentance be proportioned to the number and gravity of sins, and I tell you that who is more repentant will be more forgiven, because repentance is a kind of love, of active love. Who repents says to God by his repentance, I cannot bear your wrath because I love you and I want to be loved, and God loves who loves him. I therefore say, the more one loves, the more one is loved. Who loves completely is completely forgiven. And that is the truth. Go now, but before I must let you know that at the gate of the village there is a widow with many children who are starving to death. She has been driven out of her house because of debts, and she may still thank the landlord because he only drove her out. I have used your alms to buy bread for them, but they need a shelter. Mercy is the most acceptable sacrifice to the Lord. Be good, and in his name I give you assurance of a reward. The people whisper, consult with one another, discuss. Jesus, in the meantime, cures a man who is almost blind and listens to a little old woman who has come from Doko to beg him to go to her daughter-in-law who is ill, a long, woeful story which I, exhausted as I am today, will not write. And fortunately it all comes to an end, because I am definitely not fit to go on, as I have been suffering from a heart attack these last three hours, and it has dazzled also my sight. Since today's reading was so short, I would like to share with you uh, an introduction to a little book that was given to me called My Way of Life, Pocket Edition of St. Thomas, the Summa Simplified for Everyone, by Farrell, Walter Farrell and Martin Healy. Forward. Here is presented the masterpiece of St. Thomas, the, the Summa Theologica, in simplified form. This vast summary of Thomistic teaching which deals with every worthwhile truth from A to Z, from the attributes of God to the zeal of man, has been distilled into this little volume. It is, in truth, a miniature and simple summa for every man. As its name signifies, the Summa Theologica of St. Thomas is the sum total of all theological knowledge, a vast synthesis in which is unfolded all that can be known of God and man. It is divided into three parts which deal with God, man, and the God-man, respectively. It comprises 38 tracts, 631 questions, about 3,000 articles, 10,000 objections, and their answers. Obviously, all of this vast material is not contained in this small volume. However, an earnest effort has been made by the authors to translate and represent St. Thomas in concise form for the use of every man. The Confraternity of the Precious Blood, in presenting this volume, aims to do for the Summa of St. Thomas what it has already been done for the Missal, to place it in the hands of all men, the millions who have found Father Stedman's My Sunday Missal so helpful and practical for the Mass of the altar, will find my way of life equally helpful and practical for the Mass of life. St. Thomas begins the prologue to his great work with these words, because a teacher of Catholic truth ought not only to teach the learned, but also to instruct the beginners, 
in accordance with the words of the apostle, as unto little ones in Christ I gave milk to drink, not meat. We purpose in this book to treat of whatever belongs to the Christian religion in such a way as may tend to the instruction of beginners. The volume here presented is in full accord with the purpose of St. Thomas. It brings his message from the halls of learning out into the marketplace and into the home. While primarily meant for every man, it is profound enough for the most erudite. Hence, it can be readily recommended to father and mother, sister and brother, to the high school and college student, to the convert, the study and Newman club, and the confraternity class, to the religious and the priest. In a word, it can be recommended to everyone. Part 1 is the work of the noted Thomist, Walter Farrell, O.P., who died shortly after its completion. Parts 2 and 3 were written by Martin J. Healy, Professor of Dogmatic Theology at the Seminary of the Immaculate Conception, Huntington, New York. Signed, Rev. Reverend Monsignor Joseph B. Frey, Feast of the Assumption, 1952. God and His Creatures by Walter Farrell O.P., Master of Sacred Theology, Part 1. The One God The road that stretches before the feet of a man is a challenge to his heart long before it tests the strength of his legs. Our destiny is to run to the edge of the world and beyond, off into the darkness, sure for all our blindness, secure for all our helplessness, strong for all our weakness, gaily in love for all the pressures of our hearts. In that darkness beyond the world, we can begin to know the world and ourselves, though we see through the eyes of another. We begin to understand that a man was not made to pace out his life behind the prison walls of nature, but to walk into the arms of God on a road that nature could never build. Life must be lived, even by those who cannot find the courage to face it. In the living of it, every mind must meet the rebuff of mystery. To some men, this will be an exultant challenge, that so much can be known and truth not be exhausted, that so much is still to be sought, that truth is an ocean not to be contained in the pool of a human mind. To others, this is a humiliation not to be borne, for it marks out sharply the limits of our proud minds. In the living of life, every mind must face the unyielding rock of reality, of a truth that does not bend to our whim or fantasy, of the rule that measures the life and mind of a man. In the living of life, every human heart must see problems awful with finality. There are the obvious problems of death, marriage, the priesthood, religious vows, all unutterably far final. But there are, too, the day-to-day, -day, or rather the moment-to-moment -moment choices of heaven or hell, before every human heart that has ever beat out its allotted measures, the dare of goals as high as God himself was tossed down, to be accepted or to be fled from in terror. God has said so little that yet means so much for our living. To have said more would mean less of reverence by God for the splendor of his image in us. Our knowing and loving, he insists, must be our own, the truth ours because we have accepted it, the love ours because we have given it. We are made in his image. 
our maker will be the last to smudge that image in the name of security or by way of easing the hazards of the nobility of man. The great truths that must flood the mind of man with light are the limitless perfection of God and the perfectibility of man. The enticements that must captivate the heart of man are the divine goodness of God and man's gratuitously given capacity to share that divine life, to begin to possess that divine goodness even as he walks among the things of earth. The truths are not less certain because they are too clear for our eyes. The task before our hearts is not to hold a fickle lover, but to spend itself. Without these truths and the others that fill out the pattern of a man's days, we are underfed weaklings, starving waifs, paralyzed in our living not only by lack of strength, but even more by lack of light. To live, a man must move by the steps of his heart, And how can he move until he can see and be drawn by the beauty of goodness and truth? No man can get such wisdom of himself in time to begin living his life, or indeed in time to end it. Wisdom must be given to him, for it belongs to God. He can have this wisdom that must be had, but not through his stumbling steps of his own reasoning. He can have it if he will take it from his Maker. He can see in the darkness if he will look through the eyes of God. He can begin life with wisdom lent by God and have his heart flooded with gratitude for the loan, or he can prefer the false light of the illusion that tells him he is self-sufficient and die before he begins to live. A man hardly dare face mere natural life alone. Alone he cannot even dream of sharing the divine. Yet, to escape disaster, he must not only so dream he must make the dream come true if man begins life with wisdom lent by god he ends by possessing that wisdom if he guides his steps by a light that is not his own along a road too high and too hard for his feet he ends united to that eternal light and at home forever in a world that is god's there are men and women who do not know god they are made for happiness Every perfectly designed item of their sublime nature strains for that fulfillment which is happiness. Ignorance commits them to frustration. They have eager hearts pushed to the breaking point by all of nature's demands for happiness. But these hearts have only the wrong places to go. In a very real sense, there is a kind of knowledge of God buried deep in every human, as deep as his demand for happiness Frustration here is basic, soul-searing, catastrophic. Man makes his way to the illusory heavens offered by false gods, but always through a sea of tears shed by his own individual nature. This tragic thing can happen to men of all ages. It has happened. Yet it is not that God is so far from us, since in him we live, move, and have our being. Nor is it that the living God is so deeply hidden from the minds of men. The world is a mirror flashing back different facets of divine beauty, and all that is by that very existence shouts aloud God's name, He who is. Of course, there is no adequate picture of God to catch the eyes of men and hold them spellbound. 
it would be less impossible to expect to hold the world in the embrace of our arms than to encompass the divine perfection in the thimble capacity allotted to any creature. Yet the little that we can see of the infinite perfection of God is an entrancing picture. To escape it, one must glue his eyes to something close, tangible and blinding. The infatuated see little of anything else and even less of God. Ordinarily, it takes time, effort, and a kind of violence to become so fatuous. To simple men, as to the very wise, the pressing crush of movement that pushes things in the ordered direction that we know as natural, a faithful daily execution of cosmic chores, has always been as awesomely revealing as the surge of the sea, and as paradoxically mysterious, for both are so inherently blind and incapable of originating such motion. Only an adult who has lost the clear vision of childhood begins to think of his acts and of himself as self-sufficient, entirely his own, springing from nowhere, in contradiction to history's short record of the ages of activity. To most men, that a man can lift his hand to thwart an enemy's blow or to encourage a friend has been a wonder that enticed the mind along a path of thinking that brought him to the God on whom all activity depends, himself so divinely independent. The mystery of life's end, and even the greater mystery of life's beginning, the ebb and flow of things beginning and things ending, the steady succession of the sadness of fall and the glad promise of spring, prevent the unfettered and uncluttered mind from missing what these were meant to make clear, a life without beginning to explain all beginnings, a life without end to explain death, an infinite creditor of life to explain all the reckless loan of life to the living. The world and the men in it are full of glad surprises, yet the surprises do not come from the things that are part and parcel of either men or things. If we know a man's humanity, we know all of it, and there is no room for surprise but a glimpse of the truth that is in him, a momentary contact with his goodness, a recognition of his nobility. All of these are at once a joy, a surprise, and a rich promise. In each case, what is seen or embraced is so obviously not the whole story. These perfections are as enticing as far horizons, or the limitless stretches of the sea's dark waters, they promise the heart and the mind long journeys and rich rewards, treasures beyond the capacities of any counting room. For these things have no fence about them. Traces of them shining forth from the limited things of the world are the allures of the infinite, minute flakes of the precious perfection that belongs in its fullness only to God. The stamp of intelligence is printed deep in the very being of the universe of unintelligent things. For the theme of that cosmic poem is a theme of law and order, shining forth from creatures totally incapable of themselves of disposing things to any end, let alone to cosmic ends. Whether we look at the harmony of the universe and see order written in the capital letters of unvarying procedure and effective subordination, or at the minute organization of microscopic details in the leaf of a tree, the ear of an animal, or the eye of a man. There is that same clear evidence of a gigantic and infinite intelligence. 
we have been given a share in that intelligence that we might read the poem that only infinite intelligence could have written, though, of course, the full beauty and meaning of it is reserved to the mind that wrote it. The book of Job describes God. He is higher than heaven, and what wilt thou do? He is deeper than hell, and how wilt thou know? The measure of him is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. There is profound truth in this if we understand the depth of God as his searching knowledge of hidden things, his height as the supreme power of his omnipotence, his length as the endlessness of eternity, and his breadth as provident love embracing all things. For, of course, God is not to be reached by plunging into depths or scaling heights or by rushing to the edges of the world. He is not a physical bulk to be approached by steps of the body. He is everywhere and is to be approached by steps of the soul. It is in this same way that we abandon him and take up our abode, abode far from him, though he is in us and about us. It is our heart, not our feet, that rushes to his embrace or flees from his judgments. I'll close the excerpt here and pick it up in another reading. Hope you enjoyed this excerpt of My Way of Life from the Confraternity of the Precious Blood.